And if you look at the innovations that are coming in so many different sectors, they are not coming from the incumbents. The innovations are coming from new entrants that are highly disruptive. They've got a, a different ability to, to move. Welcome to Behind the Brand, presented by NEO. We take an inside look at the leaders behind today's most influential brands. I'm your host, Jeff Adamson. As co-founder of NEO Financial and Skip the Dishes, I'm fascinated by what it takes to build great companies. On this podcast, we'll learn from leaders that are reimagining, transforming, and innovating in the financial and retail industries across Canada. Let's get going. I'm excited to introduce Senator Colin Deacon, a distinguished individual whose expertise and dedication have left a significant mark on Canadian public service. Bridging technology, entrepreneurship, and policy, Senator Deacon brings a wealth of expertise to this role. As a forward-thinking advocate for innovation and economic growth, he has championed policies aimed at fostering a more competitive and dynamic business environment. His deep commitment to addressing pressing societal challenges through thoughtful legislation has earned him respect and recognition both within and beyond the political arena. Having served in various advisory and leadership capacities, Senator Deacon's work has been guided by an unwavering belief in the power of technology to bring about positive change. His contributions to financial technology and regulatory innovation have not only garnered recognition within Canada, but have also positioned him as an influential voice on the global stage. It's really great to, to meet you, Senator Deacon. Thanks for coming on the show. Jeff, really glad to be uh, in conversation with you. And, and it's the first time, actually, we, we will be in conversation directly versus on social media. So that's great. Yeah, and, and we, we've been chatting over social media, but, you know, you had just mentioned prior to hitting record that, you know, we had almost met in person um, or virtually, I guess, right at the beginning of COVID. As you mentioned that, I actually remember that that seems like a lifetime ago, you know, pre-COVID. I just, it, it, it seems like so much has changed, so much has passed since then. It's incredible. The world shut down on the 15th of March and that a few days later on the Monday, I was to fly to Calgary and had a, had a week's worth of really exciting meetings lined up, including meeting you guys. The one thing that hasn't changed since then, Canada still hasn't implemented open banking. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to get touch on that. But before we do, I, I do want our, our listeners to know a little bit more about you. And, and I know that your career has really spanned roles and in industries, including venture capital, healthcare, energy. But what was your catalyst behind your decision to, to get into politics after you've had such a successful career across multiple different industries? Well, you're, you're kind of to say, say that I, I, I question some of my success. I always do. I was really inspired when this prime minister changed the appointments process, that instead of it being a reward for partisan loyalty, for fundraising, for, you know, work in a a party, he changed the appointments process to be merit-based and to try and build out uh, the skill set in the Senate to include people with very direct experience in a diversity of sectors and, and from a diversity of backgrounds. And I thought that was pretty, pretty cool. And so the nonpartisan, independent nonpartisan appointments process is criticized by some. I don't think it's embraced by all parties. Well, I know it's not embraced by all parties, but it's something that has really changed the nature of the Senate. It, it's caused a lot more bills to be amended. It's caused us to reflect on on um, what our role is. You know, 
we're not elected. So, you know, I get thousands of emails to vote against certain legislation, but unless it meets very specific criteria for me that for me to have the arrogance to challenge the elected house's decisions, it would be highly inappropriate. So I say to those same folks, well, if you were in favor of the bill and I voted against it, what would you think? If it didn't pass for the house. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> You know, it's it, 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 but I was really inspired by that change. I'm really inspired to work in an institution now, and I, I didn't think I'd get appointed. I, you know, I really felt that the voice of, of a startup entrepreneur needed to be heard in parliament, somebody who had experience in taking ideas and turning those ideas into opportunities, jobs, and, and prosperity, hopefully. That that's a, it, you know, that's core to the innovation potential of our economy. And so that's why I applied. I didn't think I would get accepted because the Senate at that point already had enough old white guys in it. That's very different now. It were more than 50%, I think 54% women, 80% independent. We've got a, a really good BIPOC representation. About a third of the Senate are, are either indigenous or people of, of color or from diverse backgrounds or equity-seeking backgrounds. So it's a, it is an organization that is much more reflective of the country than, than potentially the House of Commons is, has become. It's still moving. We're still getting more women into politics and more representation. But it's to me, it's crucial to making good decisions. You've got to have a diverse decision-making team to make robust decisions. How do you think about the quality and the talent of the people who are getting into, into politics? A lot of people will look at roles in governance as kind of a bit of a, a hassle, a pain, like you don't have to deal with the politics. A lot of people will say that that's a kind of a common refrain. I don't want to have to deal with the politics. I just want to kind of do X, Y, and Z, you know, do the thing, whether it's take care of people, build, defend people, and they want to avoid the politics. Have you, are you seeing that change now? Are you seeing that, you know, and even just someone is with your background, your caliber getting into the Senate, to me, is a really good sign that it's changing, but is it is this a thing or is this just in my head? I would never have gone into elected politics. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do what an MP has to do. I couldn't be whipped. I couldn't be told what I had to say and how I had to vote or support legislation that that you know I, I can't speak against. I may have to vote for it, but I, I want to be able to speak against it and say why counter arguments are crucial you know as a ceo as a as a senior executive as founder counter arguments are crucial to making a good decision and you know that's just not the way we do it in in partisan politics uh, and opposition is there to oppose not to propose something better to me we don't do that in the senate like that's the independent senators which are 80 percent, are constantly find out how do we amend this to make it better Mm. And our job is not to defeat the decisions of the House of Commons. Our job is to is to improve and try and find find another path forward. Now that's e that's really tough when you get to things like the Online News Act and other bills where the concerns are exceedingly deep about the way they're going the government has chosen to go ahead uh, with that legislation. But that the objective is very strong, very important. So it, it gets complicated, I can assure you. Uh, it's the toughest job I've ever ever had. It's the hardest job, most in, most demanding job I've ever had in my life. And you know what it's like mm -hmm. to be a, a, found, a founding CEO of a startup. That's 24 hours mm -hmm. a day, seven days a week. You're always worrying about making the next payroll. You're worried about the next, you know, launch of the next version of your software and not having too many bugs and being able to iterate. Like, but this is the toughest yeah. job I've ever had. 
Yeah, and I think it's it's certainly commendable that after having done a lot in your career already to to basically go and say, hey, I want to like triple down and do more work. Tell me a bit about like explain the knuckle dragging version of the the Senate. You know, so is it what power does the Senate wield? Can you guys veto bills that come across? Parliament or, or, or what's the process? I, I don't think it would be appropriate for us to ever completely kill legislation from an elected. Do you have that ability? Yes, absolutely. We can we can reject decisions from the House of Commons till the cows come home. Has it ever happened? I, I should know and, and be able to point to when it's happened. I, I'm certain it's happened at some point in the country's history, but but very uncommon and certainly not something that the unelected Senate at this point in our country's history would do with any ease at all. Pushing mm-hmm. back is a, is really our role. So legislation that involves spending can only originate in the House of Commons, and so we respond to it. But we can introduce our own bills, and the government can introduce bills in the Senate as long as there's no, no spending attached to it. So that's, that, uh, that's, that's happened for uh, the Regulatory Modernization Act was introduced uh, a year ago in the Senate. We pushed on that and said, we need to do something quite different in how we modernize regulations because we're not doing it fast enough in this country. I mean, open banking is an example. You and I have conversed online about that. But there's so many examples in so many sectors, agriculture, fisheries, you name it, AI, privacy, competition law, uh, where we, uh, we're not keeping up in regulations and policies right across government. And so we've got to become a lot faster. So a number of colleagues and I have proposed approaches, new approaches to addressing how we modernize regulations that actually we're launching the Senate in in September. You'll hear more about that. We're pretty excited about bringing more agility to that process. So that's, you know, we have the ability to engage and and I view my role as a marketing role marketing role of important problems that are not being understood and a marketing role of, of actionable solutions that need mm-hmm. to be given attention. When you think about the issues that you are presented with, one of the ones that comes to mind is competition in Canada. Why do Canadians love their monopolies? What, what, what is the, is there a historic reason why we really root for Goliath and not David? I don't know that Canadians love their monopolies. I think that culturally we've felt that they were important because we're a smaller country spread thinly across a large geography. Technology has fundamentally changed that. You don't have to have a whole lot of bricks and mortar to deliver highly disruptive solutions that are much better than the legacy offerings. I think there may have been a point in time where that made sense economically for Canada, but that time has well passed. And so then what is the ro- the government's role in really keeping these companies accountable. And, and just for, for some of the listeners, we have some of the most concentrated industries in Canada. If you look at you know banking, I think the top five, top six have about 90 plus percent market share. You look at telecom, you've got the big three that own 90 plus percent market share. Even grocery, which this one shocks a lot of people, but if you think about, take the top three grocers. 85%, I think. That's about 85. So like that... And that one's kind of crazy because if you think about 8.5 out of 10 of the meals that you're eating are all controlled by three companies. I don't know. There's something about it being food that just scares me even more. We could last for a lot longer without food than we can without water. But we need to have, I mean, 
if COVID proved anything, we need to have a more robust food supply chain that Canadians mm-hmm. control. And with technology in terms of, you know, California running out of water. So climate, in the climate crisis, California is running out of water. We get most of our, our, our fruit and vegetables in the wintertime from California. We've got to start investing far more aggressively in, in, in high density agricultural climate resistant options like indoor agricultural. Domestically? Domestically. It's, it's good. It's crucial in my mind. And if you're trucking all of that food and losing a third of it before it gets digested, you know, a third, a third of the food that is shipped is, it goes bad or is wasted by the consumer. You think about the carbon footprint of that and mm-hmm. how that could be reinvested in locally grown agriculture. So to me, there's a big change that's going to happen. The other thing is we're running out of land in a lot of parts. Ontario's the, the building and losing 350 acres a day of, of prime farmland to houses and, and uh, shopping malls and roads. So we've got to, we've got to really worry about the fact that, that we're, we're, we're planting our, the last crop when we plant a house mm-hmm. on land. And we've, we've got to really start to think about how we do that and think about the regulatory changes needed to make that happen. So that's, for me, it's about, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it's about the fact that we've got a culture of enjoying or thinking that that was necessary to have mm-hmm. concentration, but that's not serving us in a world that needs more innovation in order to be competitive. How are we doing globally? How, how is Canada looked at by other countries when it comes to competition and the regulatory frameworks we have? Are we holding our own there or do other countries kind of look and say like, well, maybe someday Canada will catch up? I think the latter for sure. And when you look at any area where regulation is a burden, big companies love regulatory modes, right? The, the more regulation, the better, because they can afford to manage it. They've got the scale to manage that cost. And it prevents new entrants from having the ability to, to get in and, and disrupt. We've got the highest regulatory burden in the, in, uh, at the OECD and the largest co- amount of command and control regulations, which by definition, get rid of the ability to innovate. You must do it this way versus you must achieve this result. Hmm. So they're more pres- prescriptive, in, Very our, prescriptive. in our regulatory. And so we've got to, if we want to be able to be competitive, we've got to change. And if you look at the innovations that are coming in so many different sectors, they are not coming from the incumbents. The innovations are coming from new entrants that are highly disruptive. They've got a, a different ability to, to move. But regulations are preventing them from from taking full advantage of that disruptive value. Be, and incumbents, you know, our banks, for example, are 25 years older than Canada. They understand lobbying. They've been doing it for a while. It's it's a real barrier to be fighting against. And and how is this affecting Canadians? The the larger companies will point to just how well Canadians are doing and how prices are going getting lower. And they they'll, they'll have all these great points about how. Monopoly isn't bad thing. Like, look how great things are for everyone. But what's the truth behind that? How are how is this affecting Canadians? Look at telecom. I mean, I'll give you one example. My Senate phone, which is under the Government of Canada plan, uh, I have all the data, all the text, all the voice time that I want, and it's about twenty five dollars a month. Can I get on that plan? Every Canadian should be able to get on that plan. If that supplier can provide the government of Canada with phones at that cost. They're making money. So <laughs> yeah. what do we got going on here? 
And then you get a, a new entrant like Win Mobile that gets drummed out. And Win Mobile is why we had $5 a day, why the big companies went and gave us $5 a day use of our phones in the United States, rather than exorbitant mm-hmm. costs prior to that. And now it's $16 a day because they don't have the competition. Mm-hmm. You know that, that wholesale data and voice rates in the United States have dropped in that period of time. So they've tripled their costs, or sorry, their fees, while their costs have dropped. That's what happens when you don't have competition. And, and the Shaw-Rogers uh, merger, I was just so disappointed to see to see that happen. To me, it seemed like Shaw was just about to kind of break into mobile, provide Western Canadians with, with better service. I think they were expanding out east too. They were doing some interesting things with, with bundling different services and then got snapped up by Rogers. And then I think they sold they sold Freedom to a Quebec telecom. I just look at it simply. I, I had the pleasure in the spring of going down and meeting uh, with Jonathan Cantor, who is the Assistant Attorney General in charge of antitrust issues. And, and we talked to, spoke mainly about the changes in, in the dig- in the big tech sector. Also with the, the group at the, the Federal Trade Commission. And mm-hmm. they rolled out the red carpet because saying, we want to figure out how to help Canadians benefit from the changes they're making. Like, can we start to follow in the wake? President Biden made a very important statement. He said, capitalism without competition isn't capitalism. It's exploitation. You know, Mm -hmm. capitalism requires competition to deliver benefits to customers. The best way to keep industries customer-centric is to have competitors who are doing a better job doing that. So, So what's the solution then, Colin? If we kind of fast forward over the next five to 10 years... Where do you think we're heading from a regulatory perspective? Like how how do we rein in some of these large oligopolies that we have in Canada? So I'm actually getting more optimistic because of the work that is being done in the United States, because of big tech really flexing its muscles. You know, when the first Broadcast Act rewrite came to Parliament and it was the last Parliament, Bill C-10, it became C-11. I said, how do you do this without updated competition laws and privacy laws for the digital era? That is what's driving the way our economies are going to be functioning. So let's get the rules of the road right, and then we'll figure out what legislative tweaks are needed in specific sectors. I'm quite optimistic uh, about competition mm-hmm. because people were so upset about Rogers Shaw. The minister came out with a 21-point plan about he, how, you know, a deal about how he's going to hold them to account. Well, why isn't he just empowering the, the competition commissioner to do that? You know, it, it's not up to a minister to hold a particular company to account. I think I saw there was a, there was a line that we're going to be watching them like a hawk. Yeah. And it's like, th- I don't want the minister doing that. I want the minister <laughs> dealing with the entire economy and not trying to, yeah. to hold a bad actor to account. So that's, you know, for me, uh, and it, it, you want the the rules of the game, the way that the economy functions, to to mm-hmm. to to be such that it, it happens automatically. But the competition commissioner has been become somebody that the Canadians are are so, getting familiar with. Matt Boswell's mm-hmm. been in the Globe and Mail, the National Post, you name it. He's been on podcasts. He's he's all of a sudden. There, we're, we've got a competition commissioner that Canadians, many Canadians, can say the name of. So I think I think things are changing. I tend to be an optimist, but but it's 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 a long road that we have to go down. There's no question. Do you think it's going to take you know a step too far? Like I remember back, I think it was in the late '90s, when I think it was was it RBC that was 
looking to acquire BMO? Four biggest banks were had lined up and Paul Martin had to fight back and he did. And and do you think that was something that was driven by the average voter or was that driven by the government in thinking that's what the voters wanted? Like how, how did that actually get started? You know, I th- I think there's other people that have to be asked about that that were in the room because I I don't know what drove the decision making, but what I did think it was funny at the time is that the need to merge was driven uh, because of the fact that without mergers, they were going to have to close branches and lay off employees. And when he <laughs> when he pushed back and said, you can't merge, they closed branches and laid off employees. But <laughs> and, the, they, the, and the other argument they had is in order to compete with the Americans, we need to close branches and lay off employees. And then also like, and, and they didn't merge. And then how many American banks have really like given the Canadian banks a run for their money here in Canada? You know, we, we've, we've got great banks. We have great banks. They're very well yeah. regulated. You know, people point to Silicon Valley Bank's failure as being a, uh, the reason why our banks are great and having big banks are great. No, it's because we've got good banking regulations. But those good banking regulations make it very hard for a new entrant to get in. And for the smaller uh, companies like Laurentian Bank to really compete. So we do have to look at bringing more agility in some way, shape or form to our banking regulations, but not Putting, mm-hmm. That doesn't mean introducing more risk as Silicon Valley Bank was allowed to do and not marking the market on, on a big loss that they had in their, in their asset call <laughs> that, that, mm-hmm. they, that, you know, that, that all of a sudden became a surprise and they had a 24-hour run on the bank, mm-hmm. the fastest run in history. So I, I look and say it's, it, we need to have robust banking regulations. I look at it and say the open banking world is one that doesn't change much for our big banks and the British have shown that. They're the leaders for sure in this space. Mm -hmm. What it does do is it helps those who the banks are not thrilled about working with. Small business Mm -hmm. and marginalized Canadians are not their top customers. That's not where they make money. So, but those are the folks that really get helped by uh, financial technology companies that are serving their very precise needs. And I looked at last year at, at the Elevate festival in Toronto, I got to moderate a panel that had Borowell talking about their rent advantage program. I think you guys have just done something together. We had uh, Manzil Bank, which is dealing with halal compliant banking and Mm -hmm. Coho talking about using your telco bill to improve your credit score. All of these things are focused on those who don't have strong credit scores, who are not being served by the current banking system. It's a way to to use non-bank products to improve your credit score. You know, why mm-hmm. is the most expensive product the first way for somebody to improve their credit score? A line of credit or a credit card. There should mm-hmm. be cheaper ways. And using your telco bill and your rent payment as a way to demonstrate your credit risk or lack thereof, it's, you know, this comes from, this doesn't come with the banks. They could have done this years ago, but these innovations didn't come from the banks. They have come yeah. from outside. And that's, that's all I'm looking for is to bring competition that serves those who are currently not being served. I'm grateful that we have robust banks in this country. Mm-hmm. Without them, you know, a hundred years ago we didn't. We had bank many, many bank failures a hundred mm-hmm. years ago. We have we're benefiting from great, strong banks, but I want them to to not have the ability to just 
control the entire banking system themselves. And I agree with you. I think that there is lot, lots to be grateful for that we have a stable banking sector. But how do we keep, how do we maintain strong regu- regulatory frameworks without stifling innovation? Like you look at, you look at the UK, they can point to that as an example that, hey, it is possible. What's stopping us from having that in Canada? Like, why, why hasn't open banking come to Canada yet if it's already been proven elsewhere? Somebody needs to press go. It's as simple as that. And it's it's our finance minister, our deputy prime minister. She just needs to press go. The, there's a great plan in place that the financial technology companies and, and banks have worked out, led uh, by Finance Canada. Mm-hmm. It, we've, you know, Abraham Tashjian has been the, the, the lead person on it, and, and he's... It's been a transparent process, more, more transparent than just about any government consultation I've ever seen. Yeah, it's true. Uh, we've got payments modernization. Ron Morrow has uh, read that, led that at the Bank of Canada. You know, there's another area where the bank control over interchange fees uh, costs, it's estimated cost has cost the Canadian economy about 2% per year of GDP. In Europe, you're paying... 0.3% interchange fees. You know, so we're paying six or seven times what the Europeans are paying because our regulations have not adjusted to technology. And mm-hmm. we've also, you know, we don't have real-time payments in this country and Lord knows when we're going to get based on the the continual delays in the real-time rail. That exists in other countries. Why are we not expecting that? It's a regulatory problem. It's a governance mm-hmm. problem that we haven't pushed this. Now, no party has been, re- you know, both parties have embraced it in the last election, but no party has really pushed it. And this is where I think, if I, if I remember correctly, there's about $10 trillion worth of payments in the Canadian economy every year, 20 billion transactions, and we're paying six or seven times to the banks what we should be paying if it was a more competitive environment. And mm-hmm. we're not getting same-day payment as retail consumers. Even just the speed, like uh, all friends say like, hey, I need to move money from this place to that place. And they're like, why does it take so long? And we had uh, Hannah Zaidi from Wellsimple yeah. on the pod. And she was she was saying, well, it's because it, like she, she walked through the process and it was, it sounded so manual. Yeah. It sounded it like literally the, there was like someone that had to take a floppy disk out of a drive, you know, move it over to another computer, create an Excel spreadsheet, upload it to another server. And then it gets processed kind of overnight and then it gets sent. I just was, could not believe how 1980s the whole thing sounded. And she's like, oh, no, it's actually 1960s, Jeff. It, it's, it's like, well, you know that COBOL is, a, is a, the language yeah. at the core of the banking system in this country. 1955. And it's older than I am, Jeff. That language is <laughs> older than I am. The, there's nobody getting trained in that language that's coming out right now. I think the technology risk in our banks... Uh, and and our government services in this country is significant because we're not mm-hmm. keeping up with mm-hmm. with the pace of technology technological change, and we've got to start considering that as a as a risk factor to be managed. You know, we've talked about open banking, Senator Deacon, but I want to I want you to put your marketing hat on here for a second, and because I think part of the problem is. A lot of people don't know what open banking is. There's also, I think, consumer-driven finance is another term for it as well. Like, a lot, we can't even agree on what to call it a lot of the time. So what's the simplest way for Canadians to understand open banking and, and what the benefit is for them? 
So what it is, is that you get to use your financial data for your purposes. You can decide how to use your financial data. Right now, you have no control over your financial data. The bank controls it all. Mm -hmm. So it's to shift that control from the bank to you. That's number one. Now, what does that deliver? Well, what the Philadelphia Fed identified was that uh, financial technology lenders over an eight-year period, they started off where who they lent to was virtually the same as, as the credit score of that the, the banks would lend to. But over eight years, that, that those lines completely separated. And what were previously thought to be uncreditworthy individuals were identified by the Philadelphia Fed and by fintech lenders. And the term that Philadelphia Fed used was invisible prime borrowers. They're invisible to the to the legacy banking system. And we're seeing that in Canada as well, where there is a, there's a big divergence between what the traditional credit system identifies as being a credit risk and what it doesn't. And I'll give you a personal example. I decided to change credit cards, the cards about uh, eight months ago, and my credit score dropped 50 points. I had no more debt. I had not missed any payments, but just the process of closing a credit card and opening a new credit card caused my credit score to drop out of nowhere by 50 points. I was moved into another bracket, a lower bracket. So if I was just about to sign a mortgage at that time and I didn't have the, the, the high credit score that I do, I would be paying a premium over the next five years because of something mm -hmm. that, that I had no idea was a credit score risk. That's yeah. the stuff that is really, it really makes me angry. You know, we've got to address that issue and we can do it through regulations. We can do it through all these really cumbersome approaches, or we can enable innovation and competition to drive fairer, more customer centric system. So that's, that's an ex real example of, of what open banking can bring when, when you can choose who controls your data. Okay, I'm going to try to paraphrase that and, and put into into kind of Jeff's speak here. So essentially, the by bringing in an open banking framework, it's kind of new rules that the government's going to bring in that's going to give the customer the ability to take their data with them, to control their data. In another way of looking at it is saying they're going to open up competition more and make it easier for well, basically, they're going to make it easier for customers to do what they want with their data, which means that they could switch or they could it could bring in new products. It could bring in new new companies could be created out of it, um, which will essentially drive more competition into the banking sector, which will then ultimately drive prices down, introduce new technology, new products that will benefit Canadians. New products. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the example of being able to improve your credit score by using your regular payment of rent and your regular payment of your telecom bill to improve your credit score. Yeah. Currently- Or cash flow. Cash flow. Currently, those are not available to you because the, the, the system that we've had to evaluate your credit worthiness has not considered non-bank instruments- but those could be those could be reported to the credit bureaus. They are, the, the, and Equifax has made real progress on this, and so that's they've done deals with different companies mm -hmm. in this regard. So that's you know, it it's coming. But let's accelerate the pace dramatically. 
let's make sure that when the consumer is sharing their banking information, they're sharing it mm -hmm. with an accredited organization that's met certain standards. It's being shared in a very specific way to make sure that there is no privacy and, and, and uh, cybersecurity risk. That the liability, if there is a breach, is we know how it's going to mm -hmm. happen. So it's not the consumer's not sitting there wondering who's going to solve this problem for me. These are mm -hmm. all rules that, that Finance Canada over the last year and a bit has solved. They've got mm -hmm. a plan in place and we can iterate on that. So that's the plan that I'm really hoping the Minister of Finance pushes the go button on. I think maybe part of the challenge is that it's going to enable and open up new products and features and new companies and increase competition. But it's not like we're saying, hey, it's going to be this one thing or hey, you're going to save $180 a year. You know, the articulation of the benefit to Canadians is very much forward looking because you don't know what what it actually might be or how it's going to present itself in Canadians. How are entrepreneurs going to respond to this new framework? What kind of uh, bothers me, I remember hearing at this, this survey that I think it was the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada, FCAC, was they surveyed Canadians and I think only 9% of Canadians had heard of open banking. And after an explanation, 52% said they wouldn't use it and 29% were still uncertain after getting explained to them. So I, don't, I just don't know anyone who says, hey, if you want to pay less, if you want to have more freedom and you want to have a better experience, who is against that? I, that, that just blows my mind. So I'll, I'll just offer something specific. When you go and buy a car, if the salesperson is sitting there telling you all about how the engine functions, does that have any influence over your decision to buy a new car? You know, not really. No. no, exactly. It's, it's so why talk? We we just for consumers, they should never even know that open banking exists. What they should know is that there's an accredited organ organization that offers services that they need that mm -hmm. are offered safely and and are government approved rules. We don't need consumers don't need to know about open banking. What they need to do is be able to benefit from open banking. And when they benefit about open banking, it's not, it's not going to be something they need to explain to their neighbor. They just need to say, hey, guess what? I now am seeing my credit score improve as a new Canadian. And in a year, I've now got a credit score that I can go and get a, a loan to buy a car. I can go and, you know, X, Y, Z. Yeah. That's all they need to know. Yeah, put my kids through college. Whatever. I want to touch on entrepreneurship, uh, Senator Deacon, because you've made this transition to, to politics. How has entrepreneurship affected your life? What have you taken away from your experience being an entrepreneur? And then how do you, how do you use these skills or these experiences in your day-to-day in your -day life as a senator? Entrepreneurship is about finding a problem and creating an opportunity out of it. That's my view. It's as simple as that. And that's the process of innovation. Problems are great things once they're identified and if there's a willingness to address them because they've, they alert you to a way to get better. And so that's been my whole life. I worry that we have a department of innovation. I don't believe we can have an innovative economy without an innovative government, whole of government, right mm -hmm. across every department, every area, from a municipal to a provincial to a federal level. And Canada has not got innovative governments. We have, mm -hmm. we don't have a history of it. We don't, we've got analog governments for the most part. They're not digital governments. At a time when Ukraine has been fighting a war, they've implemented a, a digital government service. Yeah, Daya. All on their, their mobile yeah, app. The super app for the government. It's, it's, you know, it, they are, they have become the dream that they laid out, which was to be the most convenient government in the world. And they are, yeah. no matter where Ukrainians are in the world, they can 
deal with their government. Yeah. 50 government services all on their smartphone. And it's 85% of adult <laughs> Ukrainians that have access to this now because it's so good. They don't need to know the workings <laughs> of it. doesn't need to be called digital government. They just know that now they can get the service without having to pay a bribe or whatever else that they, that they want. It's been a huge yeah. for that country. So for me, innovation is, a, is about an attitude. Entrepreneurship is about an attitude. You don't need to be starting a startup company to be entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. You need to be creative in, in, in how you're describing a problem and creating an opportunity from it that delivers mm -hmm. benefit in a reliable way. So that's, for me, it's essential that, mm -hmm. that Canada, and, and I, I'm not just pointing at the federal government, I live in a province uh, where I recently had to uh, mail in a check, which I, to, I had to wait for checks to arrive because I didn't have any anymore. I had to mail in a check and a, and a physical handwritten form, our answers on a, on a handwritten answers on a form by Canada Post. I had to go buy stamps in order to get something done. We have got to stop that. We cannot afford analog government anymore. So mm -hmm. it, it's a, you know, what is what's entrepreneurship? What's it's it's the core of being an innovation innovative country and community, mm -hmm. whether or not you are doing it in a private company, or in a mm -hmm. big corporate entity, or in government. I, that's a great definition, Senator Deacon. And and I what I love about it is that it's it's not focused on making money. And I think that's how a lot of entrepreneurs get kind of categorized. It's really about yeah, seeing a problem and then seeing that actually as an opportunity and then actually doing something about it and putting your skin in the game. You know, I think we're, we're making real progress as a country. And as well, we're seeing that innovation uh, as a skill set can move across sectors. Mm -hmm. And that's what gives me a lot of hope. I, I, in the 90s, I was working in the venture capital business. Uh, I was a stockbroker initially in my career and, and moved into venture capital for a period of time. And what, what amazed me was working in Alberta, all the innovation was occurring in the oil and gas field. It was not transferring mm -hmm. to two of the best medical research institutions in the world. It, it, you know, and, and we weren't thinking about, okay, how do we build a really big biotech business in, in Calgary using our, our two phenomenal medical schools. And that was the space that I was spending time in. Hmm. Um, you know, but look at what's happened in your innovation community over the last five years. It's exploded, mm -hmm. right? And it's exploded well outside of oil and gas. And yeah. so, you know, those are things that I look at as life's about iterating, right? It's about iterating. You know that. You didn't build, skip the dishes in, in a week. And version one, I had a director that said, if you weren't embarrassed by version one, you waited too long to release it. <laughs> yeah, to ship it, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. got to iterate, right? Yeah, it's so true. As much as I, I do talk about the things that are that are maybe aren't working, at the same time, like we have so much potential oh, in Canada. It's it's actually, massive. and I think that you just look at whenever Canadians are called to something, that's when you see just how incredible Canadians really are. And I I hope that we can answer the call when it comes to you know banking and telecom and and quality of life and productivity because i just think that we have so much great here so many good things here in this country that we take for granted and and i and i think that the world would be a better place with canada continuing to rise on the world scale without question uh we are taking way too much of it for granted and mm -hmm. we are not fighting for our lives for our prosperity the prosperity of our grandchildren the, the state of the world for our grandchildren the way we need mm -hmm. to 
So we, we have to get, as you say, we've got to really start to learn how to scra- be scrappy again and work with what we've got to deliver something better. Well, Senator Deacon, I am incredibly grateful to you for taking the time to be here and for the work that you continue to do and advocate for. Um, we're, we're a big fan of you out west here. Wow, you're very kind. How should people follow you? How should they to listen to what you have to say? Where's the best place for them to pay attention? I'm most active on LinkedIn. My website's got everything at colindeacon.ca. It's got everything that, that we're working on, the projects we're working on. And I'm honored if there's if people engage because it means that and and they don't need to engage positively if they're not agreeing with what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'd rather I'd rather hear yeah. about the arguments and and make sure that they are considered than have somebody saying, "Hey, that's you know that's great," or or being quiet because they think it's being polite. Yeah. Social media isn't polite, but. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean. So, Jeff, thank you. No, th- thank you for all you do. We're back and forth a lot. It's nice to meet you uh, virtually in the, on the podcast, and, and uh, I look forward to meeting in person someday. Awesome. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to Behind the Brand. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. If you're interested in learning more about Neo Financial, visit us at neofinancial.com. Behind the Brand is a production of Neo Financial and Media Lab YYC, hosted by Jeff Adamson. Strategy, research, and production by Keegan Sharp, Alana Tefelchuk, and Kyle Marshall.